We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hi, I'm Dominic Patton. And I'm Anthony D'Alessandro. And this is the Deadline Podcast, Hero Nation. Today we'll be talking about Captain America 4, Shang-Chi, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, and we'll be speaking with the director, writer, producer of Warner Brothers Reminiscence, Lisa Joy. But so before let's we get talk, started. But before we talk to Lisa, and, and you know, clearly, US World fans out there know that this is where it's going to happen. Um, we really got to talk about Anthony Mackie because, uh, you know, if Falcon and Winter Soldier gave us the first African-American Captain America, Captain America 4, for lack of a better expression, as exclusively broken by Mike Fleming today, is certainly about to bring him to the big screen, wings, shield, and all. I hope that it's just not a theatrical day and date uh, home release. Uh, I saw Shang-Chi the other night at the at the premiere, and man, it was just, it was mind-blowing. The cheering, and uh, it was on fire. I mean, they really raised the roof there. It was gorgeous. It was well, wonderful. You, but you're, but you're, you are old school like that. You, you love a good Hollywood Boulevard premiere. Yes. What I love is, what I love is, is, you know, you got to give them respect. You might, you might, your jaw might drop at the billions they make. Your your mind your eyes might just gloss over at the sometimes by committee scripts that they produce, but Jesus, do Marvel know how to pull it off? Like oh, very was, much. This yeah. was this was exactly how you launch a new a, a, a tentpole hero in a tentpole fashion. This was so gradual. It was so systematic. It was nicely from the big screen to the streamer screen, right up to the big screen. This is perfect. For Anthony, for Captain America, for for the 21st century, latter part of the 20, middle part of the 21st century, I guess, but especially for Marvel, keeping the brand strong, the image tight, and really just moving, like not just saying, oh, we're going through a new phase, but they're actually doing it. But there's a little bit of what you've seen before, and there's a little bit new, and obviously yeah. we've got another Marvel movie to talk about here. But as brand strategy goes, this is the way to do it. Oh, God, yeah. And then, you know, what was beautiful at the Shang-Chi premiere is John Chu was there and he- In the heist director and of course, Step Up King and of course, Crazy Rich Asians director. Yes, and he had a couple of actors. He had Aquafina and um, in, in, in the movie, as well as Michelle Yao yeah. uh, from Crazy Rich Asians. But, whoa, whoa, whoa. you know- Michelle Yao's from Everything Awesome. Let's be clear about that. <laughs> but what was just beautiful is- Seeing John there and then seeing Shang-Chi on the screen, it, it was like, you know, Marvel, Marvel gets it. They know how to celebrate diversity. They know that there is an audience um, that has never, you know, the Asian audience has been dying to see a superhero on screen before. You know, like to date, it's arguably, arguably just been guys like Jackie Chan and Jet Li and they're not, while they're super guys, they're not superheroes. And um, 
it was just, this is just, it's such a beautiful poem to the audience. And um, I think it's gonna play through the roof. I think it's really going to surprise. There's all these sour pandemic Delta variant uh, headlines right now. And I really think this movie is going to overperform and it's really gonna tee off the fall. I think it's gonna surprise us. You really wanna see a good movie succeed because it's a good movie. You wanna see a good movie like Shang-Chi, you wanna see it succeed because it's a smart movie. But I also, for me at least, and a little bit of this is the, 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 the tempering that In the Heights suffered from is you want to see it succeed because you want to see everyone after it succeed. You know, yes. you want to see people go, an Asian superhero is a global sensation. Now, Shang-Chi does not have a Chinese release date yet. And that's a very important component to this. Kevin yeah. Feige has done a little bit of, I wouldn't say damage control, but if you're familiar with the character in the comics and the comics, there were elements of the comics that were definitely... Chinese culture from a white dude's perspective. And there was some stuff that was that was so stereotypical and some stuff, let's be completely honest, that was just out and out racist and 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 cruel. And Feige has talked about how they 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 addressed that, they they looked into that, and and you know, people from the film have talked about to some degree, and I'm hinting at something we're gonna do later next week, maybe, but have reverse engineered some of that. So basically have taken, have taken a frown and turned it into a smile. That's my cliche mm -hmm. of the day. Um, and I think that that is a beautiful thing. And so, you know what? I think they've already succeeded. I know that you're the box office guru and we love you for that, but the pandemic is real. There is, you know, the Delta variant is growing, clearly more mass mandates and kids are back to school now. So, our, you know, our issues about that that are gonna occur. It doesn't matter. Like the box office will be what the box office is, is and context has to be the one to pay attention to here. But the beauty of this is it's a damn good movie. Yeah. And it's coming at a time when damn good movies are maybe what people need to see. Now, you and I will argue where it needs to be exclusively on the big screen or small screen, but that's my point of view on that. I know that you were so taken by the premiere. Can you tell us, I'm going to ask you to tell us, not me, mm -hmm. bear, with no spoilers. Well, what do you think? Listen, I think the movie got a bad rap when they were dropping trailers and there was a sentiment out there of, oh, we've seen this type of movie, movie before. I'm telling you, the action scenes are amazing. Uh, I, would, I would say that they are some of the best in a Marvel movie. Um, it has a very fanciful ending. I don't wanna, of course, I'm not yeah, gonna yeah. spoil Whoa, that. Stop, stop, stop. But, but here's the thing, I think it works. And I think it definitely works in the world of Shang-Chi. Um, all of these movies go out with a bang. Doesn't matter what they are. Transformers, Marvel, DC, there's always something apocalyptic. Um, but this works, I think, within the parameters of um, what Marvel's set up here. Now, gorgeous before, we're gonna talk to Lisa very soon. And, and I, you know, again, as, as much as Shang-Chi is, as a, as, as, there's, some, there's a historic element to that. There's also a breakthrough here for her, first time as a, as a feature film director. Before we talk to that though, very quickly, this fits under the umbrella of Hero Nation, obviously because Amber Heard is one of the stars of the Aquaman franchise and Johnny Depp was for many years, a star of the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise among others. 
Amber failed on what was, I believe, her third attempt to get Johnny's 50 million defamation uh, lawsuit against her, which she filed in uh, early 2019 against his ex-wife and Rum Diary co-star. Um, tossed out. It's going to go forward. The judge in Virginia essentially said what happened in the British libel suit where Johnny failed in his attempt to get the Sun tabloid, Rupert Murdoch's Sun tabloid, have to take back calling him a wife beater in print obviously referring to the allegations around him and Amber. Um, the judge in Virginia said, yeah, that ain't going to play over here. And the judge made some very, it was a very wide ranging opinion, but essentially the two points, the, the one point that I think is very important that she made was Amber was never a defendant in the UK case. And so the rules of discovery, the rules of, 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 of yeah. process, didn't apply there. So it's not apples to apples on either side of the Atlantic, if you know what I mean. It's going, this is going now to go to trial next April 2022. It's going to be, you know, it's going to be long. It's, it's going to be something. And it, and you know, Johnny has also been given permission in another, in rare, a rare-ish legal victory. He's had a pretty good month, to be honest. A New York judge also gave him permission to investigate further whether or not Amber actually did donate uh, portions of this, her $7 million divorce settlement to the ACLU, as she said it did to others. Her lawyer admitted to me back earlier this year that some of it quite hadn't been dispersed as advertised, and there were issues around that. She tried to put it on Johnny in the lawsuit. Timing doesn't really make sense. Amber got this money in 2017. Very quickly, you're, I know you've been following this with me, but from your point of view, does this have any impact upon Aquaman 2? I don't think it has any impact on Aquaman too. I mean, Peter Safran told us him, himself that, you know, Amber, he, they stuck by Amber Heard and they were, if they were going to do a sequel, it was always with Amber. Um, Which they are look, doing as we speak. Johnny, Johnny got hurt the most by Warner Brothers in this instance. They, they fired him from Fantastic Beasts 3. I think the question is whether can he ever come back? Let's say he comes out of this trial um, and it's in his favor. How does he come back? Does the studio gamble on him again in a big event movie? Or does he kind of have to piece his way back like a Mel Gibson in an independent style where he needs to bankroll his own movies and try to find maybe a redeeming piece of Oscar bait that could put him back into good favor with Hollywood? Uh, I think, but those are long-term questions. I have a, um, a legally unsophisticated, uh, I have a legally unsophisticated question to ask you though, Dominic, mm. why isn't this trial out here in California? Why is it on the East coast? Um, very, very long, uh, discussion about that. Long story short, Johnny wanted the jurisdiction of Virginia because at the time, anti-slap laws in Virginia would have played in his favor. And he basically said, well, look, this is based upon a Washington Post op-ed that she did in late 2018. So I'm going to put it in their backyard. Laws have changed in Virginia, actually, which has been slightly to Amber's benefit. Amber actually tried to get the jurisdiction moved uh, and failed at that. To be honest, though, the, the amount of time this has taken, the jurisdiction is no longer that much in Johnny's favor, even if the judge did give him a favorable opinion this week. Having said that, this thing is all going to play out in, the, house, the, in the, the home state of Thomas Jefferson. So we will see if life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness either fares well for Amber Heard or Johnny Depp. And with that, let us look forward and talk to Lisa Joy.
We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. And now with us today on Hero Nation, the director, producer, and writer of the upcoming Warner Brothers movie, Reminiscence. She's the EP and director of HBO's Westworld, Lisa Joy. Welcome. Good to be here. Hey, guys. I should also say co-creator of Westworld. And co-signee, I guess is the way to put it, of a massive overall deal with Amazon that you guys are in. And we're going to want to talk a little bit about that later, Lisa, because I have to say, if people say that Afghanistan is where empires go to die, trying to adopt William Gibson books for either the small or big screen are often where producers find themselves falling into a ditch. So you are brave, and we want to talk about such bravery later. Before (laughs) that, I want to ask you, um, the film comes out tomorrow. Uh, everyone knows, starring the great Hugh Jackman and a cast of other people you might recognize from Westworld. So to that, with Westworld and with the film, you seem to have a fascination with memory and with with people looking back insofar as what they're dealing with in in current terms are not, not the world they wish they lived in, to put it mildly. A lot of us obviously have felt that way the past year and a half, if not more. Um, What is there about that look at, at, I guess I want to say, psychological and cultural sentimentality that attracts you so much? I mean, I think it's it's a, a pervasive uh, condition of, of humankind, right? Is we are exactly who we are in this moment, but in this moment, we are sort of bounded infinity of other moments that we've dragged with us through time, you know? And, and I'm a storyteller, but the idea of storytelling as in a way a virus is kind of interesting to me, right? Because as humans, we were able to adapt and learn and grow as a culture and cohere and also and sometimes fight other people because of the stories we tell ourselves to define our identity, right? It's something that works on a macro and a micro level. Storytelling follows traditional structures and rhythms a lot of the time, I think, so it's more easily transmissible. You know, just like long epic poems were easily memorizable because of their rhyming scheme. You know, stories with a three-act structure, some some familiarity to the tropes and genres. That's what helps it um, kind of get packed within us. And that doesn't just occur on the outside level. We are all storytellers, right? If you think about your past and you tell an anecdote from your childhood, do you really remember that moment? Do you really remember the moment that you're talking about? Or are you talking about the way you've talked about that moment before to become become photocopies of photocopies of photocopies of ourselves. And in doing that, do we become unreliable narrators to our own story? Lisa, I have to ask you, um, as I hear you speak about that, it reminds me so much of someone like Jean Baudrillard and his, his, his philosophy of the simulacra and what have you, this idea of the over and over and over again. Is that exploration, do you think that I mean, in many ways, isn't that isn't that the telling of the cultural moment we're in right now that we're just reliving the reliving of the reliving? You know, it's like, you know what they say? Um, there's a great thing I read once. I think it was from the Smithsonian. And the Smithsonian are, are really upset about the state of photography in America today because they say now that we all have smartphones and everything like that, 
we take every picture to make sure it's perfect. Oh, like Lisa, no move, the light's just a little bit behind your head. Whereas the great photographs of American history are often the imperfections. They're, mm -hmm. you know, Ansel Adams capturing someone with, with rain falling on them from a side or what have you. Do you think that the, the part of what we're seeing in, in this is that we are constantly trying to restream our sense of self by redirecting what the past was? I do think that, that we do that. I think that we try to give ourselves a hero's journey a lot of the time, right? Very few people live their lives and I was like, I was a NPC, I was a side character, or I was actually the villain of this timeline, you know? Most people, no matter how good or bad they are, tend to cast themselves in a heroic role in their own retelling, at least to themselves. And I think one of the things that interests me about memory and its fallibility and its subjectivity is the danger of constantly assuming we're the hero. The danger of assuming that we are in a storyline that we can control. You know, I mean, it, it's that kind of fallacy that makes it hard for us to sometimes acknowledge the truth of the world, the truth of ourselves. And only by acknowledging it, only by seeing it fully, which is so much a theme of reminiscence, can you actually move on? Can you actually come to something beautiful and meaningful? When it comes to an original movie like this, with a complex storyline, how did you get a big studio on board? It, it, it's often that when we have these, these yeah. complex storylines, we see it going to a series. But how did you, how'd you win Warner Brothers over? I, I think, I mean, it, it definitely wasn't, you know, an overnight situation, you know? I, I wrote the script seven years ago. Um, and it's funny because people responded to the script um, and and because I just shoved it on the open market, there were multiple multiple bidders, right? And I think that seeing that other people responded to it, even though it was kind of experimental, emboldened people to go with that instinct, you know? But I, I do think it was, had I taken it to one place in general, I think maybe it would have been a little more fearful on the get-go. So, so some of that, you know, the court of public opinion in that way helped me out, right? Um, and then uh, the same thing for, when making the movie, like I took it to Berlin and it and it did well at the Berlin Festival. And that's how I got a couple places interested in it. It is a original story and somewhat unusual in its, um, I guess you could call it straddling of genres, you know? And so I, I was just happy I got to make the story. You know, I got to make it in the way that I'd hoped to make it, which, which is a real blessing. Um, and, and I also want to say, because you brought it up, full applause to someone creating original IP. Because that's not, you know, you know more than I mean, most of us, Lisa, that's not something that the, the town is really going for right now. They, if they can recycle, revive, or reboot, that's where they want to put their money. So full applause to you and Hugh and everyone involved for that, Dandy and everyone, because that's brave. It's, 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 it was, it, you know, a script that I loved, but it would have never come to be ever had it not been for Hugh Jackman, Rebecca Ferguson, I didn't even know her. She just jumped in after one meeting, you know, and, wow. and the way that I tested the tech on it, you know, the way that I developed the look and, you know, we shot the hologram scenes in camera, like we designed a machine that would allow Hugh to interact with the 3D hologram on the day on set. All of that R&D, we did before even taking it to Berlin. I did it with Paul Cameron and Howard Cummings, and we did it just... Like like kids in a in a garage experimenting with doodads, you know, and 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 it's um, their generosity that allowed me to to come anywhere close to making this film.
Now it's, you shot New Orleans and in similar to Westworld, you know, in season three, you have a city and you build on top of that to make a completely new city. <laughs> this is a New Orleans we haven't seen, but it's a, New Orleans is a place of history and memory. Yeah. So tell me about situating everything there. Well, I had, I had never been to New Orleans um, until I went for the scout, <laughs> for a scout. And, and I'm riding around in this car looking at New Orleans completely um, shocked and mesmerized because I'd never been anywhere like it. You know, I've traveled all around the world, but sometimes places right next to you can feel completely foreign and completely magical. And New Orleans has this history that um, imbues it with such culture and complexity. I, I, I loved it. And of course I shot New Orleans for two places. I shot New Orleans for New Orleans and also for Miami. I also did some filming in Miami as well. Um, but it felt like the perfect place to film it because I was, thinking about a world that had seen its share of knocks, you know, that had seen hardship, that had, you know, there is social inequality in this world. There is, um, there, there is trouble. A lot There's of water. A lot of water. A lot of water. A lot of water. The waves have come and there's a lot of heat and certainly scouting New Orleans in the summer. I learned there is a lot of heat in New Orleans as well. I was sweating from places I did not know had sweat glands. Um, but um, there's, there's a beauty in the way that New Orleans has continued and 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 just created this cultural vibrancy and this resiliency. Resiliency and vibrancy that was, you know, really sharpened under extremely harrowing and terrible and unfair conditions, which still one does not want to happen. You can have a culture without that, but it is an incredible testament to that city and those people. That um, that I mean, they are just cooler and and better than, <laughs> than many many of the people who have just gotten much luckier. Um, and but look, they there's something about that where I'm I'm depicting a world where you know it's underwater and it has seen also um, inequality, troubles, her horrific tragedy brought on by you know environmental conditions and. At the same time, while dealing with that, which to me isn't the fictional part of this science fiction film, that's just, you know, read the New York Times and you'll see we're in a we're in a bit of a predicament here, and it's, it's time. A little, it's a little bit like the inevitable. It's it's the inevitable, and it's also happening. That's why this isn't a movie about climate change or anything. Yeah. It's like to to do science fiction now, you know, in order for it not to be completely backwards you have to address the way the world is clearly headed the way the world clearly is right now like the the design that we made for the um for the ballast that separated the wall from the city in miami that howard made and we wheeled them onto set in new orleans and the new york times had a front page cover story where they're basically building those same walls you know mm -hmm. and they look remarkably similar um and it's not because uh i was in any way prophetic, it's because I was simply uh, trying not to be in denial about what is readily apparent in, in this can world. I, can I, let me can I ask you a question about that? Because obviously there's your, there's your work with Westworld. There's the, the we, you know, we talked about the Amazon stuff that you guys have, have coming up, which some of which is very similar in, in, in nature to a, a world that is, let's say, deteriorated from the one we're in right now, which is deteriorated from the one that we grew up in, to be honest, in my opinion. But 
does that present for you as a creative person, as a director, as a writer, what challenges does that present when, you know, it's hard to outright, for lack of a better expression, the horrors we're seeing and the vast, the vast amount of change, especially in technology, but also in the social norms that those technologies engender that are happening as well. You know, I think I think many moments in time feel like the worst moment in time, <laughs> you know, and I am not sugarcoating this at all, you know, but I, I could also say that even from a personal perspective, could I, a female minority first time director have made this film 10 years ago in this town? I don't know. Mm. I, I think my chances would have been harder, you know, and so I think you're being very polite, Lisa, to be honest. <laughs> but, you know, it's that's the thing, right? And and was global warming happening 10 years ago? Yes. Does it feel more depressing now? Sure. But it's because people are talking about it now, which mm. means that we're getting ready to freaking address it, which is actually a good thing. You know, like when 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 sometimes bad things come to light and are terrible and make us feel like shit, it's actually a damn good thing because maybe we needed to feel a little shitty about it so we could change it. Then let me ask you that. What kind of response do you think people are going to have to the film? We're not going to give away any spoilers. Hugh Jackman's in it. A ton of other people you're going to want to pay attention to into it. it happens in a world that's a little wetter than the one we live in, to put it mildly <laughs> in this. But well, how, do you think, how do you think people are going to react? I endeavor not to imagine it. Like my, my hope is to to just hide, uh, you know, this, I, my, my job is to write and, and, and hope for the best and hope somewhere somebody feels like a little more seen because of something I've done. And, and then for me to really try to hide and ignore the rest, because I can only do the best I can do, you know, and, and, and try the best I can try. And everything aside from that, it's, it's like looking in a mirror too long. You know what I mean? Like if you can't change your features <laughs> you've just done the best you can just go look somewhere else you know maybe try to learn something else from some other person who's beautiful and fantastic to watch you know I think I, I, I try not to contemplate myself in that way too much um uh, I'd like to grow as an artist but no good can be found from um you know I think we live in an age that is very self-aware very curated in our appearances very um in some ways narcissistic, you know, and there is no better cure, I think, for um, personal despair and insecurity than to give a shit about something beyond yourself, <laughs> you know, like that is the antidote, I think, to, to that kind of, you know, understandable personal sadness. <laughs> so there's a lot of different opinions on this theatrical day and date release out there by a number of filmmakers. But in this instance, when we're here in the pandemic, it's going on HBO Max. This is a pretty good thing. Westworld fans can feasibly find this. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, can't, I can't say anything about this time that, that I, I might not regret or have changed my mind on later. It's just a crazy time, you know? I, I really have been sticking to the nerdy stuff. All I know is you can only enjoy a movie if you feel safe. <laughs> so however someone consumes this film, whenever they consume it, I just want them to feel and be safe, you know? And, and to have conditions where they can do that. That's, 
That's the most important thing. You know, I have to say, Lisa, we've asked a number of people, both on the podcast and of course in Anthony and I's writing on Deadline, we've asked people that question. That's by far the best fucking answer we've ever received. Like, that's a great answer. And I really wish more people would be more forthright because I think that shows a tremendous amount of empathy towards your audience, as well as, you know, wanting them to, to, to engage with your, your art. That's a great answer. Thank you so much for saying that. <laughs> so, so I'm really- What else are other people saying? <laughs> well, I think a lot of people are treating it in a much more, to be, I'll be honest with you. I think a lot of people are treating it in a much more either a bottom line point of view, or they're treating it in a kind of like, you know, I grew up on movies and I want people to go into cinemas. And I get that. I, I yeah. grew up on movies too. Obviously we all did. But I, I very rarely do I hear them addressing as one human being to other human beings and saying, look, I get it. Like, I mean, that's how I feel. I mean, I, I, I love movies, but I'm very uncomfortable going to the theater. I, I, have, a little, I have a little girl. I'm right. worried about if I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm vaxxed, but I'm worried about if I catch something then I'll get a yeah. I'll get a bad case of the flu, but she could get something terrible, you know. Yeah. So yeah, I think that that our concerns are are getting lost in this this the hybrid debate. You know, there obviously there are lawsuits flying around in some other cases. I just, yeah. again, I just want to say thank I you. Think, really, I, yeah, I mean, I think you have to. I have to respect the viewer, and honestly, do, do I think that this is a great time to release a movie? No, <laughs> absolutely not. You know, I mean, it's definitely not. Um, but. Look, I, I don't know. I, all you can do when you make something is hope to God the people you make it with feel proud of it and had a good time. And then hope that some way or another, it finds people who connect with it. That in itself is really meaningful and an incredible you know, gift. Most people don't have that. Can we just quickly ask you, obviously you, uh, you guys have a big deal with Amazon. You got a bunch of projects, Unknown and others, but you're trying to bring a William Gibson book to life, yeah. which has been, uh, let's say, <laughs> Johnny Mnemonic, not the best Keanu movie you could ever go see, in my opinion. Might be the best Henry Rollins movie, but not the best Keanu <laughs> one. Um, so how is that working? Where, again, you know, no spoilers, and you can read the book if you want to know what happens. But, you know, one of the great writers of our time, um, yeah. how is that process going? And what are some of the issues and challenges you guys are having in getting it into the shape you want it to be? Well, I was a huge fan of the book and I'm a huge fan of Gibson's. And when I read the peripheral, because uh, I've read other Gibson books and been like, God, this can't, this could be an animated movie, maybe. <laughs> I don't know how to do this. And, um, but, uh, but when I read the peripheral, I was like, got it. This can be made, this will be really great on screen. And, and part of the reason why is it's, it's dealing with futurism, like all many of his films do, uh, many of his books do, but it also, deals with the here and now and very relatable characters here and their interactions with the future. So that that helped me find an access point to it, right? Because it's two, two worlds that are not often um, explored in, in Hollywood. And weirdly, the future is explored more than in some ways the deep south, <laughs> which is where the uh, contemporary timeline is. And, and so, you know, it's a lot less daunting when you have a writer like Scott Smith, um, who, who came on board to uh, write the scripts and adapt a series and, you know, actors like Chloe, it's, it's, they're, they're doing a great job. And, and I know how hard it is. But I when I when I see the scripts, there's a lot of humanity in them. I think as long as you can bring humanity to the characters, no matter where they are, if they're aliens, or 
robots or talking vegetables, you know, um, someone somewhere will feel a little less alone in the world and a little more like there's another talking vegetable like them. <laughs> talking vegetables in or aside. When, when are you looking for where we might see this hit the small screen in Amazon? Gosh, I really wish I knew that. And I maybe am supposed to know that, but I've been so preoccupied with reminiscence and I'm right now like writing Westworld, so I'm, kind of, I'm confused. I feel like I should run and get another member of my team and get you a more informed answer than whatever I just blurted out. Can you tell us, can you tease anything about season four of Westworld? I heard that Caleb has his first encounter with Shaloris. I have this on very good authority. Um, um, I will say that, gosh, you know. Um, Here, I'll make it easy. If you had a theme. No, no. <laughs> no you know what I You're going to see. right on the verge of giving us the Westworld. I, I'm going to give you some scoop because Jonah's not here to stop me. He's always the one who says something super elliptical and then stops. And I don't even know what it means myself. I'm like, I guess I just won't talk because I might mess it up. Um, you're going to see some new worlds that I think are really fun. And you're going to see someone that I've kidnapped from Reminiscence in a funny way. Whoa. Oh. Cross, Does her crossover? name? Are we looking at crossover? Very simple. No crossover. No crossover. Okay. All right. Does, does the person's name rhyme with Mabeka Nurbison? <laughs> This is no, our although, I mean that that rhyme that so many actors could fit that <laughs> rhyme. Very good. Um, so she Roman world. She, she doesn't tell us. So Roman world. Any theme? Any any like if you had a one word for the theme for season four? Um. Damn it, God, this is hard. Jesus. Um. Um, you're one of the best. We, you know, you didn't think we were going. This isn't softball. Um, inversion. That's not really. I feel like I could do better, but you guys have put me on the spot, and that's the one word I came came out with. All right, all right. Well, inversion. Before you leave us, I want to ask you something. Um, Hugh is a one of the the kings. Of, of genre based just simply on his performances of Logan, if nothing else. Um, what were some of the um, what were some of the surprises that happened for you guys in working together on this film? Because you know he obviously he's the lead. He's Hugh Jackman. You know, there's a lot of things there, but uh, I feel like there's different parts of him we see here, and I wanted to get a sense from you about that as the director, as the writer, as the creator here about how that worked and and what surprised you. Um, the way that I like to work with people is I'm super straightforward. I try to just be like a normal human being and, and be nerdy enough that I can stand by the things that I like and also admit if I'm beat by something, you know? Um, and, and that's a really great combo with someone like Hugh who push drives himself really hard. Like I drive myself and, and wants to always be better, you know? And, and when you're working with someone that generous, um, it's it's an incredible gift because we would we would kind of feed off of each other and in this look he has no vanity as an actor he is a incredible 
human and actor. He, he, a lot of movie stars, I think, would be very concerned about their image and their reputation and all these things. And all he cares about is inhabiting a character as fully and truly as he can. He doesn't care where it takes him or what he looks like. There, there are takes when, you know, I, I told him from early on, I was like, look, you are, you know, Wolverine meets Humphrey Bogart, you know, but uh, we're going to also go under that. Like you're the, you're the badass and the hero, but we have to really look at what it means to be a quote unquote heroic man nowadays and, and to unpack some of that and show some of the flaws and some of the short-sightedness. And that's not going to be pretty and it's not going to feel heroic when you're doing it because it's not, you know, but I think it's how to make a fair portrait of this character. And there were times when we would consciously say, you know, this is an ugly, ugly moment, you know, and, and he would, he would go for that. And he would, he would sometimes do take after take just doing it for himself because he is such a, he's so hard on himself in the most incredible way. Like he, he makes the most subtle and nuanced adjustments. He's always thinking. He never left set. He stayed on set between takes and he's in almost every scene. And he stayed there A, to support me um, because we didn't have a lot of time to make this film. And B, because he is always learning. He's looking at every single dynamic. He knows every single person's name. He is a real, um, he, he just studies humans everywhere and dynamics everywhere. And he is so fucking smart. Like it's, it's funny because everybody always talks about what a nice guy he is. And that is absolutely true, but he's not a nice guy because he's anybody's fool. You know what I mean? He's a nice guy because he's a good, strong man who's confident in who he is, but he, there's nothing that gets past him. There's no bullshit. You can't bullshit that guy because he will know in an instant. And it's great because I'm not good at bullshitting. So um, he's just, honestly, he's the best. I, I, I respect him and I just adore him. Well, Lisa, you're the best too. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you guys. It's great being here. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Deadline Podcast, Hero Nation. Make sure, as much as listening to us here and listening to us on Deadline Hollywood, make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you never miss an episode. And let me tell you, this episode was amazing. We have something amazing coming up in the next few weeks. And of course, you can find all of our breaking news coverage of TV, film, business, and everything affecting our industry at Deadline.com. Talk to you later. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.